1: Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African-American Studies, where scholars and writers of African-American life, culture, arts, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the privilege of talking to Alan Adell, the editor of a provocative new collection of essays on playwright August Wilson. The title of his book is August Wilson, Completing the 20th Century Cycle. The focus of this volume is on the second half of August Wilson's Ten Play Cycle, and it is a companion volume to Alan Adell's first collection of essays titled May All Your Fences Have Gates, Essays on the Drama of August Wilson. Both of these volumes are published by the University of Iowa Press. Alan Adele is a prolific writer and scholar. And today, he took time out of his busy schedule to discuss how he came to the project on August Wilson and what that research might mean for you and me. Let's listen in. Hi, Alan.
0: Uh, hi, vishon How are you doing?
2: I'm doing very well. Thank you. Good. Today, we're talking to Alan Nadell about his new book, August Wilson, Completing the 20th Century Cycle, published by the University of Iowa Press in 2010. I've read this book, and I can recommend it highly, especially as a companion to Alan's first edited collection, May All Your Fences Have Gates, uh, August Wilson. Um, Alan, I wonder if you can begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Well, okay. I'm uh, right now. I'm an endowed chair at the uh, University of Kentucky in American uh, literature and culture. i what they call the William T. Bryan Chair. Uh, I got a. I did my undergraduate work at Brooklyn College, and as it turned out, uh, my master's there too, where I wrote a, a thesis on uh, Ralph Ellison's uh, Invisible Man as a rewrite of uh, Huckleberry Finn from the perspective of Jim, or a symbolic rewrite of it. Uh, that. Became um, the seed of the dissertation that I wrote at at Rutgers University, uh, which really looked at the way uh, Ralph Ellison. Use the allusions in his text to nineteenth-century American literature, in order to um, create a whole new critical perspective uh, on that. That that book was called Invisible Criticism. Uh, After that, I I got my first job at Purdue University, and uh, it was in post-World War II American uh, fiction was the niche they had me in, and. I started working on something called uh more which became a book called Containment Culture that covered um the culture of the cold war uh and it was the first time I started branching out beyond uh simply uh literary studies into things like film and drama and uh historical artifacts and t v commercials and things like that um uh i 've written a book on um Uh, since then on uh, television in uh, black and white America. Uh, and uh, I edited these uh, now two books on Wilson. The way I, I came to Wilson was kind of interesting a- as I was uh, actually working on um, containment culture I started to notice that in a lot of African American uh, literature there was a, a kind of leap to the um, s- w- w- let's just say, call it the supernatural a number of people have called this magical realism. Uh, uh, Toni Morrison has, uh, has taken that term to describe herself uh, derived it from uh, Central American uh, particularly Colombian writing Uh, I'm less inclined to call it magical realism because it uh, deprives the um, uh, work, both the Latin American work and the African American work, of its own historical specificity. So I think we might need a second name for it. But anyway, what struck me about that, what was really important to me, was that it seemed to me this leap to the figurative world, the imaginative world, uh, was uh, a reflection of the historical fact that the uh, court decisions, not just leading up to the Civil War, but even after, continued to treat African-American humanity as if it were figurative and property rights as if they were literal, so that black humanity was contingent on um, the claim to black humanity not impinging on anybody's property rights. So the property rights, most classically in the great Dred Scott decision, took precedence over the human rights that were in conflict with it. And I, I was thinking about this a lot, and when I just happened to go to Sea Fences when it was on Broadway in, in uh, 1986. And It seemed so powerfully to consolidate all of the uh, issues that I was uh, thinking about at the time that I became very interested in Wilson's work, and then I put together a a, uh, session for the Modern Language Association uh, to deal with his drama. He had now just sort of exploded on the horizon, had two Pulitzer Prizes, and it was was becoming clearly uh, one of the most important of American playwrights. And then I called my editor at at, uh, Iowa, who had recently published the uh, Ralph Ellison book, you <laughs> And I said, "Would you be interested in a book a uh, collection of essays on august Wilson and I think they ran that contract through about as fast as any academic press has ever done that <laughs> They just <laughs> they said yes at that point, there was nothing there was no there were no scholarly books on Wilson um, Someone named Marilyn Elkins was doing uh, a book at the same time. It turned out a collection for Garland Press, which is uh, you know a, a reputable but not a, not an academic press. so this was the first uh, book in fact um Wilson's niece uh... Uh, Kim Ellis told me that uh, when she first wanted to learn something about his drama and she asked him to explain it to her um, I don't know if she was a teenager or just a, a young adult um, he uh, gave her a copy of this book he said this is the, this is the introduction to the work so what, what happened is anyway I put this, this collection together and uh, at the time he had completed five plays in the cycle and uh, we uh, it, it, there were few people working in African American drama at the time. In fact, there were fewer African American playwrights. Not that there weren't any, but there were, there were, there were fewer who had uh, uh, achieved the same kind of notoriety and there were very few people working in the field and finding contributors was hard and I just worked the phones as if I were an aluminum siding salesman trying to talk smart people I knew into contributing essays and working with them so that we get some interesting uh, areas covered. And, and that collection came out and, and, and continues to, to do pretty well, I gather. Uh, uh, well, that was the first five plays, and uh, now we we move um, more than a decade later, and the 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 cycle is moving into completion. Uh, we're almost. Uh, um, I think that book came out in ninety three, so two thousand three. Uh, uh, Wilson's working on the last of his uh, plays by then, uh, and it, it occurred to me that we needed uh, 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 something on that, so I decided to throw a. Um, uh, a conference in Kentucky. I just I, when I moved to the University of Kentucky in. Um 2006 I decided to throw a conference just devoted to the final five plays, which get less critical attention, not just because they're newer, but because the, the, some of the earlier plays like Fences and The Piano Lesson and Ma Rainey had been very canonized and are performed much more frequently. So I said, okay, let's look at the last five, but let's look at them as, as part of a whole cycle. And I invited all of the major August Wilson uh, scholars that I knew uh, and we're kind of a small club uh, to come here and uh, Harry Elam who probably now has uh, the best single monograph on Wilson of the past is present Uh, terrific uh, uh, book on Wilson's drama Uh, who taught at Stanford actually had a conference that same weekend at Stanford on, on race and narrative that had been organized by his wife, and he took a night flight out of uh, 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 Palo Alto, or, or uh, San Jose, actually, I think, to to uh, get here for the Saturday of the conference. He'd been up all night, which was really uh, terrific. And, uh, again, I contacted Iowa and said, would you want to do a second edition of the first book, and I'll remove some of the essays, and I'll add some of the essays from this conference, and, um, and they said, we'll get back to you, and they said, well, you, you, your first book's uh, still doing pretty well, I said, well, you could have fooled me from the royalties, <laughs> I <laughs> didn't look that way to me, but if you say so, that's why, they said, so we'd like to just do a second book as a companion piece, and, and that's exactly what they did, and um we, uh, uh, for the cover of the first book, we uh, got permission to use the um, Romare Beard and Collage called The Piano Lesson, which was the inspiration for uh, Wilson's play The Piano Lesson. So, for the second book, uh, we got permission to use um, another Beard and Collage, The Hands Lunch Bucket, which was the inspiration for Jill Turner's Come and Gone. Even though that's one of the plays from the um, first five, it still seemed like a very nice way to, to unite the, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the two collections, and, and they, they used it. Kind of similar design so that 's how I came to this thing and uh, it 's starting to get reviews and uh, you know uh, as things go it 's been getting uh, very very good reviews um, uh, I think again, because just as the first collection was the first real scholarly exploration of his plays, uh, the second collection is the first scholarly exploration. Of the cycle as such at least as a in terms of a a collection of essays uh harry elam certainly covers all ten plays in in his book
2: okay Uh, let me ask you this question Um, before we start talking specifically about um the new book uh i want to just go back to something that you said earlier about um uh magical realism for it and and, and i want you to uh, do two things if you will can you uh say what the alternative term is or uh, the alternative perspective is you said you didn't really um, uh, that, that you sort of don't use the term magical realism. And then I want you to, to say specifically, um, where in Wilson's plays do you see such a concept uh, 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 portrayed or represented?
0: Okay, yeah, well, let's start with, I don't think there is an alternative term, because no one's bothered the coin, and uh, Toni Morrison calls herself a magical realist, and, you know, she, I guess she has a right to call herself anything she wants. Uh, terms aren't, you know, natural things, this is not a biological thing, we're looking at the DNA of a play, it's just a, a, a loose way of referring to things to give us a shorthand so that we don't have to start describing every play from scratch when we can group, we say, this is romantic poetry, we have a rough sense of what that means, even if the major romantic poets weren't exactly like one another at all. So the same thing, I, You know, it's a useful term. The reason I wish someone would promote a new term that isn't called magical realism is that I'm a very strong believer in the historical specificity of everything. I think things uh, may have what people call universal appeal, but that doesn't mean that they aren't universal appeal as historical representations of their moment. Shakespeare was an Elizabethan and early Jacobean playwright, as well as uh, someone that we can read in millions of languages and, 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 and times and cultures. And I think it's, it's really important to, to, to remember that these two things are always in, uh, in tension. So, the term magical realism arises out of a whole set of political and historical circumstances specific to Latin American post-colonialism. It, it, it has to do with a kind of unreal uh, uh, sensibility of being in a, in a strange place where the dominant language is not the indigenous language, and the indigenous people are incorporated into a certain kind of political uh, configuration. That's, that is somewhat, you know, surreal. And I'm using this not in the technical sense of French surrealism, but in, you know, a general sense of, of dreamlike or not quite real. And uh, this style was a response to the political conditions that informed uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's uh, Colombia and uh, was very attractive to a number of other Latin American writers that were in a similar situation. African Americans do not exist in the same relationship to power that Colombian people do. They, the Colombian people are both the colonizer and the, 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 the post-colonialized people. They're much more analogous in certain ways, at least to the founding fathers of the United States, as much as to uh the colonized people. They were colonies, but they were also colonies of the colonizers, as, as the United States was. African Americans, it's, it, you know, it will come as no shock to you, came to the United States under radically different circumstances. They did not come to colonize the tobacco fields of Virginia. <laughs> I mean, that's not what happened. And the historical circumstances that surrounded um, their uh, assimilation, in, in whatever sense we want to configure that assimilation, their incorporation into American history and culture, uh, is much more complex and it's just different. It's not that. It's better or worse, it's just different. And therefore, we might look at some of the same effects, like these kinds of moments where we move into a a, a transcendent or surreal or dreamlike or supernatural space um, that supplants the normative reality uh, of a kind of naturalism. Uh, We might look at that as being similar to something that happens uh, in... Uh, Mark Case's novels, just as we might look at uh, things like that in in Toni Morrison or, or um, any of a number of other African-American writers. We might look at that uh, as being similar in style, but the meaning is different because the historical situation and uh, it, it, that, that informs it is different. And that's why I wish someone would pick another term and, and, and say, yes, it's like magical realism. However, it's not. But, you know, maybe this is a quibble, maybe it isn't. Uh, in any case... In Wilson, for example, and this is the moment, the first moment that just struck me is I'm watching fences, and it looks very much like a kind of naturalist play, and, uh, you know, many people have drawn comparisons between it and Death of a Salesman, uh, you know, in a vague, loose, vague sense, I, I would say that's correct, but in a more specific sense, I'd say it's, 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 uh, uh a kind of red herring. But in any case, it's, a, you know, kind of in this naturalist tradition. Uh, And then at the end of the play, um, Gabriel, uh, Troy Maxson's brother, who uh, has been brain damaged from World War II injuries, uh, and goes through the play as as a kind of well, a combination of lunatic or Shakespearean fool or, or um, a deluded person uh, who believes himself in certain ways to be Gabriel, going around with his uh, trumpet that has no mouthpiece, he decides at Troy's funeral to play music um, so that Troy can be, uh, play his trumpet so that Troy can be admitted to heaven. And... The trumpet, of course, uh, doesn't function very well without a mouthpiece, and 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 uh, Gabriel uh, is is at first confronted with with his own illusions. And since this is a tragedy, it's a very sad uh, play in many ways, uh, and like most tragedies, in certain ways triumphant. It's you, you one watching it for the first time, not having read it, just seeing seeing it, to wonders, oh my God, this will be the, like the final moment where we have to face our uh, Illusions and understand that we are you know time bound people and that troy 's battles with death and he has dialogues with death and all of these things are uh, you know simply in his imagination and then Gabriel instead does a dance, and all of a sudden. It says in the play, when I later read it, the gates of heaven open wide, and on stage it looks that. It looks like this is really what's happened, not not that it's going on in Gabriel's mind or in, in our mind, but literally. Gabriel has opened the gates of heaven that, that he is not the deluded ones but that we have been misperceiving mm-hmm. him mm-hmm. and that w- we move into some sort of supernatural space uh, similarly at the end of Joe Turner we see things like this, uh, they're all kind of, at the beginning of Seven Guitars there's a whole discussion of, of whether uh, uh, it it's, uh, it's come, starts after the, the funeral of Floyd Barton, the central character people are talking about seeing spirits carry up his Carry him away. And then there's the figure of Aunt Esther, who is a kind of magical presence, uh, who's supposed to be as old as slavery in America. She's over 300 years old, depending on which play, how much over. And, and, and people go to see her, and then kinds of strange, miraculous things happen. Um, uh, and, uh, in, in, uh, the play where we actually see her live on the stage, Jeb of the Ocean, the next to the last play that, that Wilson wrote, uh, she actually takes Citizen Barlow in, uh, on a trip Mm -hmm. but back to the cities of bones beneath the ocean, which is the graveyard of all the people who died in the middle passage of the slave ships. And uh, again, we could say this is just a metaphor, and it certainly has a kind of metaphoric or figurative import. But I think in the terms of the play, we have to take that as the play's reality, that that is the naturalism of the play, that this figurative world has the power uh, of transcendence that the uh, literal world has historically denied African Americans in, in a number of different ways, including a, a, an array of legal decisions and social practices.
2: Wow. Okay. Thank you for that. Uh, now let's talk about the book uh, in particular. I noticed right off that the title of the new collection, August Wilson completing the 20th century cycle, is much more straightforward uh, than the uh, title of the last of the, of the first book. May all your Fences Have Gates.
0: Gates, yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, well, what was is is the a... decision on the title?
0: <laughs> well, you know, the first title is obviously a much better one. The first title comes from this. When, uh, I, I, I knew Wilson, and, and I met him a number of times, and I asked him to, uh, I think the first time I met I asked him to autograph a, a hardback collection of three plays that I had, uh, uh, and what he wrote uh, as the thing is, you know, to Alan Um May All Your Fences Have Gates. And, uh, in the introduction to my first volume, I, I sort of explain that this is, that, uh, the theater, the proscenium arch, is, uh, a, a gateway to, uh, the worlds that we don't have, uh, direct access to in our everyday lives, but that's what theater does. And, uh, at the, End of that introduction. I, I, I you know, you. It's typically the, not the introduction actually the preface. Typically in prefaces, one starts with um, some explanation of why or how you're doing this, and, and ends thanking the people who uh, uh, helped you, your family, you know, your, your dog, whatever, whoever gets thanked in this, and your editor. And sometimes those are interchangeable, but uh, in any case, you you get down to this. Um, uh, thank you, and I, and I finally thanked Wilson, and I said, you know, may all your, may all your um, uh, gates open both ways. So, basically, it, it, it seemed to me to encapsulate the uh, theme of, of the book, and it's, you know, so it's, so it's may all your fences have gates, uh, there's a colon, uh, essays on the drama of August Wilson. I think, just from a kind of street smarts, that it's easier to get reviewed and found, and it show up on on Amazon when people do searches <laughs> if, if the, the subject is the front. <laughs> Uh, So it was a purely tactical thing. I don't think this this title is is nearly as interesting, but it's kind of much more useful for librarians and book reviewers and people searching Amazon to find it. And I thought that i ought to put that uh, interest ahead of um, having a a, a kind of apt but poetic title.
2: Uh, uh, (laughs) Nice. Speaking of reviews, what what are the reviews saying about this about this new book? Uh,
0: well, they're mostly so far as brief reviews. I haven't seen anything at any great length, although I gather there's one uh, forthcoming. In uh, uh, contemporary literature, which tends to have longer reviews, uh, they're all very favorable. Uh, you know, Choice highly recommended all of this. Basically, it stresses that uh, it, it 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 asks us to look at the uh, the collection as a whole cycle and see. Uh, Wilson's themes that aren't just uh, located in one play, and it praises the thing for giving us more than one essay on the same topic, so that we can look at different characters like Antester or violence or uh, property rights from uh, 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 different perspectives, and uh, helps us, uh, you know, facilitate—I'm uh, paraphrasing now—facilitate the kind of interpretive uh, enterprise that that's you know, good, and that it's uh, also uh, all very clear. Accessible and general readers could read it as easily as academics. So that's nice. That's what you want to get. <laughs> no, I'm not complaining.
2: I noticed that um, there are uh, at least a couple, if not several, uh, authors in this book that were in the um, first collection. Um, Harry Elam, San- Sandra Shannon um, are two. And uh, so with the, I, I, I presume that um, the writers. We're very, very interested in um, in contributing uh, to this work.
0: Well, yeah, that that that's actually it, it, those two were were people around who might structure thing. Basically, as I said, Sandra has been at the center of Wilson criticism from um, very early on, and the essay that she had in the first collection, uh, she had just completed a Ph.D. in Wilson, and she was. Um, doing an annotated bibliography of him and, and doing some other work, which eventually became a, a critical biography uh, of his first plays that were published by Howard University Press. And uh, this was one of her first essays. She contacted me when I sent out the call for papers. And uh, similarly, Harry Elam was untenured. had just moved to Stanford, sent me uh, an idea for an essay. I uh, wrote back to him and said, this sounds like Good thing, but here are some of the suggestions I have. This is pre-email, so we then had a phone conversation, a handwritten note followed by a phone conversation. Things that don't exist anymore. And we and we did, and so we were really, you know, at a certain point in our careers, all getting started on Wilson. So when I envisioned the conference here. Uh, I, I made them the, the core of the, the conference. Uh, I, they were the plenary speakers along with Don Pease and Steve Tracy and, and myself. And um, uh, we were the core. And when I originally proposed to Iowa that we would take these plenary talks and put them in the old thing and I would kick out some other essays or tighten them up and make a little room. And uh, once we, um, they said, well, do a second book, uh, I not only had that scaffold of the 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 core contributors, uh, the, the major Wilson scholars, and we are. I, I would say that Harry, Sander, and I are certainly among the, uh, if not the three most prominent Wilson scholars, certainly among the, the three of the most six uh, so six most prominent Wilson scholars, uh, roughly. Uh, that became you know the scaffold, and I invited some other uh, very strong people like uh, Donald Pease, and. Uh, Steve Tracy to be plenary speakers as well and then I opened up, I told everyone in the the conference that I would consider their papers uh, for uh, publication and a number of them submitted uh, versions of the papers and uh, in one case there were two that had enough overlap that I actually wrote back to them and said, I'd like to use this but is it alright with you if I rewrite it to combine the two, you know, with their approval of course, with their approval of the final product because uh, I could thereby take both of their ideas and squeeze it into an essay because I had so many good and interesting responses. So it's not accidental, we are the major Wilson scholars, but then there's a whole bunch of other people, including some people at the conference who had been Harry's uh, students at Stanford. We were looking at people who uh, um, were uh, the people that are being becoming a next generation um, uh, of, of uh, Wilson scholars who are studying with people like us. Nathan Grant, who uh, also contributed his, his went on during that period actually just right after the conference to become the uh, editor of African American Review and um, uh, Herman Beavers is at uh, at uh, University of Pennsylvania he too was at the uh, conference um, in uh, Palo Alto at Stanford and took the same night flight with Harry to get here, which is uh, quite a compliment. Um, so, you know, uh, I think we're getting a kind of uh, core uh, People that would you know give us the, the rough parameters of what you'd call um, a Wilson studies. Sandra right now is editing an MLA approaches to teaching Wilson volume, and I'm in that. I don't know if Harry is. He might be. Yeah, he is. What uh,
2: What do you like most about this book?
0: About the book? Yeah. Uh, well, I think I pretty much you know agree with the reviewers. I I, I like the fact that it 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 reads. From beginning to end, there's nobody who is uh, uh, smart but obscure. Or, or, or I mean, I guess I, I I'm very much a hands-on editor, so I tried to get everything into a, a kind of constant, uh, consistent tone, but. Having said that, uh, I, I think it's anybody can read it, and uh, I think it it just starts raising a bunch of questions that uh, are smart. I think uh, there are still more questions to be raised. I certainly sh- am sure I could, or someone could, do another. Uh, collection on on the uh, uh, of essays on Wilson and, and look at a whole bunch of other themes that we didn't touch on, but I think it you know it's it's got a kind of a rich examination of uh, uh, the themes that unite those last five plays and how that informs the whole uh, cycle.
2: I completely agree with that. Um, we've given the listeners a nice overview of the book, uh, uh, discussing it. Would you mind reading a couple passages?
0: Yeah, I I no no I no I wouldn't mind I'd be <laughs> happy to uh so let me you know I, I think since it's a collection of essays I don't uh, I'm I have too uh, I'm going to read some passages from from the introduction and maybe one, one other thing because uh, uh, otherwise I'd be just sort of jumping around and, and uh, basically at the beginning uh, I start the introduction with a, an anecdote uh, about uh, Wilson's uh, first Broadway production Ma Rainey's Black Bottom which was workshopped at the O'Neill, Th- O'Neill Theater and uh, which is a, a contest he won the contest, he'd been trying to write plays he had a few plays in some form in the drawer, Ma Rainey finally gets them. There, they workshop it, and he's offered a, bra- a contract to go to Broadway with us. And he is, you know, he's uh, uh, in it, uh, he's around forty years old, and he has um, um, not much of an income, and uh, it's a very lucrative contract, but he loses all artistic control uh, over the play, um, and. Um, it's very ironic because Marini's Black Bottom is about property rights and artistic control over the recording of, uh, a recording made by the uh, blues singer Marini. So let me read it here from the, the beginning. It says, Conflict over the meaning of property implicit, arguably, in all of Wilson's drama, becomes particularly cogent in the last two plays that Wilson pleaded, *Gem of the Ocean, and Radio Golf. These plays culminate the writing of Wilson's 10th play, 20th Century Cycle, and set in 1904 and 1997, respectively. They also bookend the time span that the cycle chronicles. In *Gem*, a black man has died in order to prove that his life is worth more than a bucket of nails. And then Radio Golf, another black man abandons his mayoral aspirations to affirm the property rights of a Pittsburgh home once owned by his great aunt that legitimately belongs to his cousin. In Ma Rainey, in other words, even before Wilson had fully envisioned the cycle that would trace the arc of black ownership in the 20th century, he grappled with some of its basic issues. These entail the relationship of human worth to human labor, to human production, to physical property, as all of these factors are weighed on the imbalanced scale of America's racial history. Clearly, the Broadway producers who wanted to acquire Marrheny's Black Bottom, who wanted to put their own property rights above those of Wilson, didn't understand the property they were pursuing. When Wilson raised objections, he was told that the contract wasn't that important. In this industry, they said, we go a lot on faith. As long as the words don't mean anything, Wilson responded, why don't you write the contract my way? And uh, <laughs> this, this uh, led to his is um, uh, uh, not signing the contract and taking it to Lloyd Richards, who did it at the Yale Rep, and then they eventually brought it to Broadway under the strict control. Um, uh, now, um, now just to, to be a little more jumping down here, and, and as he says. Um, Basically, the other five plays completing the cycle, in order of the New York production, Seven Guitar, Jitney, King Hedley II, Jim of the Ocean, Radio Golf, not only give the cycle some new dimensions, but also provide an overall shape that converts the cycle from an anthology to a loosely structured epic. Several factors affect that shift. The first is the the revised Jitney converted from a solitary play written in the historical present of the 1970s to the play Wilson used to represent the 1970s decade in the 10-play project that Wilson conceived after Jitney was first written and performed regionally as the play reunites the cycle with the history of its own origins therefore it multiplies the historical dimensions of the cycle as a whole in that we can in that play we see many of, Wilson, of the Wilson archetypes: the ambitious young man, the rebellious warrior, the wheeler dealer, the responsible entrepreneur, the oral historian, the crotchety old man, struggling with their personal demons in a world of economic naturalism. So, these are the the. the this is sort of the way I sort of set up the whole volume here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, the introduction, of course, surveys a, a lot of the other points there, but basically that there's a, a kind of Wilson world of archetypes that he conceives mm-hmm. before he knows he's writing a 10-play cycle. He, didn't, he didn't, didn't intend to do that. One, one thing that uh, was extremely important to Wilson was that he not be a one-play play playwright, that he not uh, let success go to his head, that he not think in terms of larger ambitions. So he always had larger ambitions, that he would never, never complete anything until he already knew what the first line of the next thing he was going to do was. Wow. It, it, it was just absolutely, and, and by the time I, he died, I think there was more than one thing that he had on, the, on that uh, back burner, but it was absolutely important to him that you know, you put down something, you start the next thing. So he, he had these various plays, and he had certain ideas about what he wanted to do. And, um, someplace along the way, he realized that he had set some place in different decades and and this gave him the structure for his work, so he could see this this 10-play cycle emerging, and he starts to then think, okay, I'll do the next play in this decade, I'll do the next play in this decade, I'll do this, I'll do that. Some of them were, as I say, things he already had in the drawer that he had worked on, and then um, he has decades to start filling in. At a certain point in this process, he goes back to the play written in 1978 and performed regionally in 1978 and rewrites it as the 70s decade play in the 10-play in the cycle. So in an odd way, Jitney even though it's uh, in the second five plays, it's late in the cycle, it's his earliest play. And we can see there that even before he's thinking about this larger historical trajectory, he's thinking about the kinds of people who are fashioned within that world in the black community, and uh, he's starting to see certain types of people, and then Helping us see how historical circumstances and specific circumstances bring out different aspects of their character or their behavior, mm-hmm. so that 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 is very important. And again, always important in this plays, is is the notion of property. And, and the way that this you might say this intersects is when you talk about property the word property can mean something you own, you know, this is my land or my, my car, but it also can mean, this is my characteristic the properties of something, mm-hmm. the traits mm-hmm. and so that the, basically the properties, the archetypal properties or characteristics of the people he he meets are uh, intersect always with the property rights the properties, the things they own or want to acquire or the way they are owned or acquired and I, I think this notion of property then splits both ways and and it helps structure the parameters of, of his uh, enterprise. Interesting. Uh,
2: the book covers a lot of ground. The, uh, the authors' uh, uh, essays that you've collected deal variously um, with issues of gender, manhood, womanhood, uh, economic capitalism, as you've uh, mentioned, religion, uh, even politics uh, in the age of Obama what direction do you think wilson scholarship should go or is going now
0: well i don't know you know as we speak there are people one of the, the, the things about academic publishing particularly is after somebody's put the last dot on the last I of their essay, <laughs> and if the, anybody else out there knows about it, you're talking about almost a two-year span. Right. It used to be more than two years now that we can do online searches. Uh, we cut that bibliography time down. It used to be the Modern Language Association, Carol, the bibliography once a year, and you had to wait for it to be published, which was a year after the year it was published. So you were two years out. Uh, so uh, there the are people doing all kinds of things right now. There's a guy named David Karasner who is doing, I believe, an order, or, or authorized biography. I have never met him. Uh, I, I I had invited him to come to the conference, uh, but he, he uh, wasn't able to. Uh,
2: he's a he's an African American theater historian, right?
0: Yeah, well, he was yeah he was a junior faculty at Yale, and he he moved to I think Emerson College. I don't know if he's an assistant or associate professor there now. I I don't know, Um, and I'm not sure quite how he 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 fell into the the the, the loop of getting the authorized biography. His estate is controlled by uh, Wilson's estate is controlled by Constanza Romero, uh, who was his wife. Uh, She was uh, she's a set and a costume designer, and she did the work on uh, Piano Lesson, which is how he met her, uh, and she's just started working again, uh, the revival of Fences. Uh, she was up there on stage when I got the uh, uh, Tony for the Best uh, Revival, and she had done the costumes for that. Uh, the So she is in charge of deciding who gets access and who doesn't, and uh, I, I have stayed I gather there's a lot of infighting there. I don't know much about it, and the less I know, the happier I am. Uh, I, you know, it's not. <laughs> yeah, sure. I knew Costanza. I don't know her well. Uh, we uh, we had very cordial relations when I knew her. I have no idea what's going on. But there's a, a Wilson Center in Pittsburgh where people are doing a whole bunch of things, including his family, very involved in that. And there's Costanza living in Seattle, which is where they and and uh, she has control of the of unpublished things and uh, uh, the estate. And productions and uh, I, I think as I said, the less I know about it, the happier I am. I, mm-hmm. I'm happier with Now in terms of, I mean, I think there are lots of directions you could, you could go and uh, that's what's great about literary criticism. You know, you, you, there was a time when I was young, which was like, you know, uh, sometime before the flood and that <laughs> point, at that point there were people who actually believed, oh, I found out the meaning of Moby Dick and I better publish it before some else finds out the meaning of a Moby dick as if there was this thing and it was a puzzle and the person who unpacked it first you know got the gold ring i think we now know and i think this is not, not I'm, I'm not letting any secrets out that literary criticism is, is structured not by the uh, uh a meaning that is hidden in a book but by the questions we ask we yes. you know you, you get answers to the question. So there's a lot of questions about performativity and identity. There's a lot of questions about literacy. There's a lot of questions yet to be asked about gender and power. Uh, I just finished a, a Wilson uh, seminar, and one of my students did a paper on, on mothers and motherhood in Wilson. Now he, he, mm-hmm. There are many more men than women in his plays, but, uh, and there had been some criticism of, of his uh, depiction of women, but um, there's also been a lot of uh, noting that the women he does have are, are Often, very strong and independent and uh even if the men say "I need you to complete me they they 're not actually buying that necessarily and uh there 's a lot to be done i think about motherhood uh, you have the the great mother figure of, of uh, aunt esther mm-hmm. but uh there's there's not as much nearly as much to be done about understanding a motherhood in, in in the place where there are people who are whose role as mother is they are, they are the, the patriarchal feuds the, are, are much more important. In fact, if, if you've got a, a minute, I want to read another section of, of my introduction, which deals with Don Pease's really uh, interesting um, uh, essay uh, on uh, the king Headley cycle and, and what Don calls the, the Lazarus Complex. So the point, what happens is in one of the plays, uh, uh, one of the characters, um is very uh, down on jesus uh, for resurrecting lazarus because um what he points out is that Jesus wasn't doing Lazarus any any favor, because uh, Lazarus is just going to die again, and they him to die twice. Most of us only have to do that once, you know. And and, and, uh, and if I recall the line correctly, uh, uh, the character Stoolpigeon, he changes names. I can't remember if he says it as Stoolpigeon or or as um, Canewell, but in either case, what he what he says is he says when, when Lazarus uh, was dying the second time, maybe of pneumonia, uh, he sees Jesus come. He says, Oh. Not you again, <laughs> and, you know. So what, what Da does from this is to to develop a concept of the Lazarus con, uh, uh, complex. I want to read you a little bit because this is another structuring thing in a lot of the plays. Uh, and again, this is my introductory summary of Don's. The Lazarus complex, as Don Pease so brilliantly named and explained it, is Wilson's unique understanding of the unrepresentable void that separates a spiritual violence. Doomed to its own reproduction from the blues that such violence produces. By pointing out that the resurrection of Lazarus is not a miracle of reward, but a miraculous punishment, Wilson relegates the story of Lazarus, Pease makes clear, to the realm of vengeance the act of forcing Lazarus to relive his death. That vengeance replicates itself when men are forced to reenact the killing of their fathers in retribution for the cycle of violence from which their fathers found no escape, a cycle initiated by the involuntary capture, transatlantic transportation, and New World servitude of Africans, all of which began at the moment of Aunt Esther's birth. Pisa's insight, Places King Hedley II in a focal relationship to the entire Wilson cycle, providing the moment when Wilson can release his own cycle from the same complex that has entrapped his characters. The very first murder in the history of the cycle's composition, Booster's killing of the white woman who lied about him in Jitney, effects the actual death of Booster's mother and the spiritual death of his relationship with his father. And so it goes through the generations of Wilson's plays, as it did through the centuries that compiled the Middle Passages' Sunken City of Bones, and through the centuries in which... the which people crossed the ocean under which that city was buried. Troy Maxson, Boy Charles, Crawley, and the ghosts of the yellow dog walk in the shadow of Lazarus, not to mention both King Headley's, Floyd Barden and that other nominal king, Leroy Slater. Only after King's refusal in King Henry II to participate in the cycle of retributive violence can Wilson's plays move past his own drama's restaging of that complex. King Henry II ends, therefore, not with the death of King, but with the rebirth of Aunt Esther, as signified by her cat's meowing, and, more important, as demonstrated by her informing presence in Wilson's final two plays, her flesh as represented in Gem of the Ocean, and in Radio Golf, her spirit. In both plays she thus she is thus the anti lazarus, the presence as Pease makes cleared, embodied by embodied instead by and in the blues community wow so yeah it's a really it 's a really wonderful insight uh, about Wilson as a uh, a biographical author that is once he finds in King Hedley the second a way of escaping this cycle of retributive violence. Mm-hmm. The origins of which, of course, are slavery, but that are not, uh, but find no adequate venting against the people who per- perpetrated that uh, that that violence, and instead end up being restaged within the community. Over and over again. Uh, once Wilson finds a way out of uh, uh, to allow his characters to tur- turn that down, um, he himself writes plays that, in, at least in that regard, are very different. And Jim of the Ocean*, set in 1903, and uh, *Radio Golf*, 97, are actually part A and B in that they have the same characters. They, they, the, the people at the end of the century are the uh, the grandchildren of the people at the beginning of the uh, century. So it it, it is another way of understanding the generational issues. And it's not that they don't exist, but that they exist not in the tremendously tragic cycle of attributive violence.
2: Wow. Very captivating stuff, Alan. Um, So thinking about um the readership of the book um i have read the book as a uh, as, of course as a scholar as a teacher um, as a general reader, I think it's going to be very useful in the classroom i haven't taught it yet i've taught the, the first book May all your fences have gates um uh what would you like those various readers to uh uh to take to take away from the book
0: well i, I you know the first thing obviously is this is the monumental American playwright. You know, I, I, it's always silly to have ratings. Who's number one? Who's number two? But there's no question that Wilson is in the same uh, ca- category as as someone uh, like Eugene O'Neill or Arthur Miller, it would all be. You know, I, I, I think it, it's hard to miss that. I w- I would argue there's no playwright in, in in American history that has ten plays of this quality. Perhaps. Um, there's no play in, in, written in America as good as Long Day's Journey Into Tonight. but there's a lot of other Eugene O'Neill that you really have to have a couple of drinks before you reread them. You know, I mean, it's, it's really you know. And I, again, he's a great playwright. I, I don't mean to suggest it, but it, it's it's a a, a a canon that many many parts of which are are very dated or, or problematic. And Tennessee Williams similarly has you know uh, an incredible uh, body of four or five major plays. And it was very prolific. They continued to have posthumous stuff there. But again, it's uneven. Uh, but again, I don't want to say Wilson's better than Williams or Williams. Better. It, these are, are comparable playwrights. The first thing you have to come away with is that Wilson is, is, is one of the major American playwrights, black, white, or anything. This is not an African-American niche playwright, although it's certainly an African-American playwright. So that's the first thing. The next thing I, I want to come away with is the difference between looking at a, a bunch of plays that – Delve the same theme, and there's nothing wrong with that. Eugene O'Neill does that. Arthur Miller did it. Uh, that's fine. But the, this is also a coherent uh, opus, and there's nothing like it in American drama, and there's precious little like it in real drama. So I'd like to come away with that. And finally, I like to come away with the idea that there are lots of different ways to look at things, and interpretation isn't finding the right answer, but uh, you know, seeing something that is rich enough to produce lots of ways of thinking about it.
2: Nice. Well, Alan, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I have one last question for you. Uh, and that is what are you working on now?
0: Well, I, there's actually three things that I, I, I could uh, highlight right now. The first is a, a book that uh, I co-edited with Susan Griffin that is literally going into press as as we speak, or has just gone into press, uh, should be out next November, and that's on Alfred Hitchcock and Henry James. And we got a wonderful collection of essays uh, just where we just asked authors to pick one uh film by Hitchcock and one work by James and put them together and make of it what they will, and then we push them to look not just at the specific similarities or interesting uh, connections, but the larger implications for cinema or narrative or character. And so that's that's it. I've been working slowly, uh, because other projects keep coming up, on uh, um, a book called... um, Unintelligent design or how Bush knew, which is (laughs) an attempt to look at the various things that passed for intelligence in the Bush administration. And uh, I think passed would be in the sense not of of racial passing, but more like kidney stones. And (laughs) uh, so it looks at things like airport security and uh, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, passion of the Christ and its role in the Bush reelection campaign. And the fact that we had no occupation, literally had no occupation plan for Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. So I, uh, that's coming along, and it continues. I continue right now. I, I give lectures from it we'll Malawi, and the, the, I guess the third thing is that I just finished teaching a Wilson seminar here, and I've been, you know, I know the Canada now, you know, pretty well, and and uh, in the course of, of thinking about. Uh, the plays as I went through them week by week with, with the students. I realize there's still a lot that uh, I have to say about individual plays that probably hasn't uh, been published and I've also published some essays uh, and uh, uh, n- next spring, I'm going to be teaching a Wilson seminar in Italy on a Fulbright, and I think if I just write in the, the European tradition, the students you know are not encouraged to talk. Uh, I, I've been told they 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 you show up you you lecture they they attend. Uh, so I, I I'm thinking if I really just write out the lectures, that I might come back uh, next year with a with a monograph on Wilson, um, giving some more takes on this whole whole thing that are really the product of of, of these seminars, and uh, you know. Uh, so those will be the three things that are on the front burner.
2: Very nice. Alan, all of those sounds like great projects. And I want to thank you for being on the show today. Wow. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. Thanks for inviting me. This is really been a pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Take care.
0: Okay, right. Bye.
1: Bye. You've been listening to Alan Adele speak about his new book, August Wilson Completing the 20th Century Cycle. It's quite obvious that Alan is very enthusiastic about the subject of August Wilson's plays, And I hope our conversation encourages you to read the book. Thank you for listening.